I always used to say that this was the place that money couldn't buy. And I think that that was something that was really special to me because everybody had a story of how they made their way in, you know, clawed, begged, finagled their way in here. And so you had a community of people who really wanted to be here. It wasn't just because it was some place that had availability. It was because people really had chosen to be here. I didn't move to L.A., I moved to the Carlotta. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. Uh, well, my name is Sylvie Shane, and I am um, I'm an artist, I'm a creative, and I'm someone interested in living in a, a, a way that um, that hardly exists anymore, sort of a little bit old-fashioned and community-oriented. Sylvie's a photographer and a musician, and she has a share in a business that does craft service for TV and movie productions. Although... I don't know if it's still, if I have any clients left. That's because for many months now, a project that Sylvie took on in her spare time has consumed her. She's the public face and voice of a movement to save what she can of her home, a once glorious 1920s apartment building called the Villa Carlotta in Hollywood. She came here in 2008. I grew up, part of my family, uh, my, my father's side um, lived in Los Angeles, so I kind of grew up, L.A. was where Grandma lived. And um, I was not living here at the time, but just came to visit post a, a breakup and a major life change, and I wasn't planning on staying. Uh, I was just trying to go somewhere that felt comfortable to me to get my bearings. And I wanted to move back to New York, which is where I felt like my life had kind of taken a turn. Um, but I was here, and my I, I one of my closest friends uh, lived here at the Carlotta, and I came to visit her. And I stood inside her apartment, and I said, this is the only place in L.A. that could get me to to not move to New York. The Carlotta was built in 1926. The original owner was a woman named Eleanor Ince, and the story goes that the construction was bankrolled by William Randolph Hearst and the building given to Mrs. Ince as a payoff for an incident in which her husband, producer Thomas Ince, died under mysterious circumstances on Hearst's yacht. What was Hearst covering up? Well, the most intriguing story is that Hearst took a shot at Charlie Chaplin, who he discovered was sleeping with his mistress, Marion Davies, but missed Chaplin, hit Ince, and killed him. But nobody really knows for sure. It's one of those enduringly trashy Hollywood mysteries. However murky its origins, the Carlotta quickly became a grand dam of Hollywood real estate. Edward G. Robinson lived there for a while and Luella Parsons, who wrote her column from a two-story apartment overlooking the courtyard, and David O. Selznick and George Cukor. And, to square the circle, Marion Davies. In later years, as its stretch of Franklin Avenue went from ritzy to seedy, its grandeur was of the more faded variety. And a new generation of well-known tenants came along. Ricky Lee Jones, Neil Patrick Harris. Quentin Tarantino apparently got sent packing when he tried to rent a studio in the building to write in. 
By the time Sylvie entered the picture in the late 2000s, the building was home to a fabulous collection of actors, musicians, photographers, writers, filmmakers, and weirdos. They had family dinners in the sumptuously appointed lobby, sat for hours in the lush green courtyard, watching the koi in the pond, through parties that spilled out into the hallways and stairwells. It's all gone. The lobby is empty and dim and forlorn. Your footsteps echo on its dusty floors. The courtyard garden is a wreck, all busted concrete and dead roots. Most of the building's windows are covered over in plywood. And when you walk down the hallways, what you hear from behind the apartment doors is nothing. Because here in the Carlotta, in a place that was until very recently vibrantly alive, there are in its 50 apartments... There's just four of us. Four, yeah. This is the story of one building in a big city, and the home a group of people made there, and how the building got from there to here. It's a story of the high human cost of gentrification, and of one woman who, in her own words, just couldn't stand to see her friends get bullied. So let's go back to 2008. The Carlotta had, by that time and for some years, enjoyed the benign neglect of its owners. I think that a lot can get lost in, in rules and regulations. Um, it, it can be pretty constricting, and from, for both sides, because I think that it wasn't just that it worked to our advantage, it worked to their advantage. We didn't necessarily hold them accountable to standards um, that they would have had to have been held to as, as landlords, you know, in terms of maintaining the building um, in certain condition. And so they benefited from people that kind of just didn't ask for much and didn't make complaints when the electrical, the, the, the electricity was turned off, you know, every week or every other week or the elevator went out or it, whatever the issues were. And they didn't um, really care to enforce any policies. They, I mean, really, the only standing policy was pay your rent and, and don't be, you know, a, a nuisance. But... Um, I mean, everything else, this was a, a building that was animal-friendly and, um, and where subletting was completely fine because it attracted a certain type of person that maybe didn't live um, a regimented type of life or have a, a career that was, um, you know, this was not a nine-to-fiver kind of place. So the, those, the, the laissez-faire attitude allowed for the freedom necessary for for artists to kind of come into their own here. There were a lot of people that came out of this place um, that went on to careers. Um, and I think that, that, that the ability to thrive in the environment that I'm describing has a lot to do with that. The only authority figure most residents ever saw was the building's resident manager, Tom Rizzo, an ex-Navy man who would ritually answer his door by shouting, What do you want? And whenever anybody from the outside was so foolish as to inquire after one of the rare vacant apartments, would leave it up to the spirits to decide. Did I mention he was also a psychic? It was Rizzo, in consultation with the spirits, who told Tarantino to get lost. His Navy discharge papers described him as nonconformist, but good under pressure. People came, people went. One of the longest tenured tenants was a gentleman named Sam Fuller, a waiter at the Sheraton Universal, who took it upon himself to make the courtyard and the lobby shine. 
He stuffed the lobby with furniture cast off from the movies. There are pictures on the website. Ex-resident Stinson Carter took them before he moved out in April. And you really ought to take a look. The lobby and the courtyard garden, they were glorious. Sam's one of those really special humans that doesn't know how special he is. There's just a magic about him. Sam was responsible for um, what people knew as the lobby, the grand lobby, uh, all the furnishings that were in um, the lobby and and the courtyard were largely due to him. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Tom Ellis who I understand it had worked with Sam on, on the courtyard originally, so I don't want to not give him his proper uh, acknowledgement, but um, but Sam was the one that maintained it all and that had for sure f- furnished the, the lobby pretty much entirely. That was the first thing that people saw when they came into the building, that when you combine um, those furnishings with, with the already sort of existing beautiful architecture, it just really created a, a mag- magic. And, and I think that that magic, and you can see that in the photos, that's like, that's Sam. In what was surely his most astonishing act of largesse, Fuller bought a $10,000 grand piano and put it in the lobby by the big windows overlooking the courtyard. Another resident, a computer programmer named Tim Mott-Smith, liked to sit there on Sundays and play. He was partial to Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Sam had a musical background too, but he kept it to himself. I have to say this about Sam, he might kill me, but... But I have to, he has a little secret that I found out um, only in the last year. I didn't, I didn't know this uh, the whole time I was living here. But Sam, actually, um, in the 60s, was putting together demos. He was working with somebody in the music industry putting together demos. Um, and we found one. One's, it's online. Uh, it's under the name of Johnny Fever. And it's, uh, it's, it's a 45... Um, by the name, the track's called Zombie. If you if you check out Johnny Fever, Zombie on YouTube, you can find it, and it's really good. And it's Sam in the '60s, and um, before he kind of just d- decided that he needed to um, to find ways to pay the rent that were that were maybe more uh, reliable <laughs> reliable sources of income. I may be walking, I may be talking, drinking and eating, but my heart is beating. What am I, baby, since you went away? Zombie. I'm walking, walking, zombie. Yeah. Anyway, back in Sam's grand lobby. We had communal Thanksgiving, we had communal um uh, holidays, so Christmas. Sam was the one who generally put up the um, the Christmas tree, and so there was a lot of life in that common space. Um, people had parties. I think back in the old days, um, more so than in recent time, people even got married in in the lobby. Um, a lot of, I feel like my friends and myself included, we used the the rooftop maybe more. The views are beautiful up there, but 
But all of these spaces, I mean, different people sort of gravitated towards different spaces. It all seems a little like a dream now. It's kind of one of those things where you, you get used to it. Um, I, re- I remember that walking into my apartment when I'd finally kind of be alone in my apartment was really when I, when I looked around and thought I was the luckiest person on earth. But I, th- I think um, that the lobby in the courtyard when you, f- when you first like happened upon the Carlotta was the thing that would draw you in. Um, I think everybody has echoed that, that when they first saw the courtyard, they, they thought about all the things that they would write that down there, they would sit by the pond and all the things that they would do if they ever were lucky enough to call this place home. Things began to unwind after the recession of 2008, when the economy started to bounce back and the Carlotta's once downscale stretch of Franklin Avenue began to glimmer with possibilities. So late 2012 is when the um, the grand the grandson of the original owner, well, when I say original, I mean the the this was uh, owned by the same family for a really long time, and the grandson inherited his trust, as I understand it, in late 2012. And so about that time, he brought in these new managers. I mean, the first it w- it was made sort of pretty clear that th- their reason for being here was really to um, clean house. When I say clean house, I mean get rid of as many people as they could. They went after the low-hanging fruit first, which was going after subletters. There were a lot of long-time sublets, meaning people who had lived here longer than I had, 10 years, but who weren't the original leaseholders. Basically, what what happened is, is that they really went about making life miserable and taking away the things that that we loved, like closing off the rooftop, um, which we, I mean, we had rooftop garden boxes up there where we grew tomatoes and peppers. And um, there was a, young, a couple with two young kids who they had all their uh, toys up there um, and they helped with the gardening. And we had barbecue. I mean, all the kind of things that make life enjoyable. Um, they basically just one day went up there, tossed it all out and shut the door and told us, that the rooftop was no longer um, accessible. Nobody ever told the residents that the intent of the new owner was to empty the building out in anticipation of a sale. They were told the plan was to renovate and that they really didn't want to be hanging around while all that bothersome hammering and sawing was going on. So some of them drifted away to places that were less special, but maybe not so much trouble. When the building was sold in the summer of 2014, It can't have come as that much of a surprise to the remaining tenants who numbered about half the building's capacity. Real estate is real estate, and money is money. The new owners have stated their intention to turn the place into a luxury hotel, and around Christmas of last year, they began to serve eviction notices under the Ellis Act, a state law that allows property owners to evict rent-controlled tenants if their intention is to take the building off the rental market. Like, say, for a luxury hotel assuming the hotel thing wasn't a strategic dodge. The insanity of this whole thing is that there is no, there is no application for a hotel currently, like with the city. There's no, nothing filed that, towards the goal of turning this place into a hotel. Anybody who knows anything about like those types of processes, I mean, they're really long processes. So usually that's like the longest part of any kind of developmental process is the, is getting 
I mean, especially we were talking about a zone change here. It's not even just a variance. I mean, it's a pretty, it, 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 it's a long shot anyway. Even outside of the opposition, it would be a tough sell for a lot of reasons. You know, it, the challenge here is that, I mean, do the question, do they really want to have a hotel? I mean, maybe, sure. I mean, I really want to be a figure skater uh, or an astronaut, but I'm also not doing anything to pursue those goals. Are they prepared to, to really go through with this? Um, I, I mean, I don't think so. And then um, if, if they don't, then yeah, it's most likely it would be an apartment building again. The Ellis Act is the bad guy in a lot of stories about hypergentrification around the state. It's even become a verb in some quarters. The tenants of the Carlotta, Sylvie tells me, got Ellist. Her own eviction notice gives her until December 22nd to pack up and clear out. She's been offered relocation expenses substantially more, she says, than the law requires. But she's not going anywhere. Not yet. The problem is is that none of these things occur in a vacuum. So someone might argue, oh, well, they got offered plenty of money. What are they complaining about? Well, there's a few things. One is, is that, okay, you can take your money and now you're in a pool of people vying for housing in the city of LA. You're likely to go to an area where you're then possibly displacing someone else. So now you're part of a bigger problem. That was problematic to me. Second of all, for me, I mean, there's no price on your home I started my life over again here and really created the life that I think I always wanted and that and had a profound sense of of joy and fulfillment and that holds so much more value to me and so that was also a problem that I wanted to bring light to the the buyouts all came with with a um, stipulation that one could no longer voice their opinion or oppose any future plans. And I couldn't agree to that. Things are moving toward an end game at the Carlotta now. There are suits moving through the courts to thwart the final evictions. The tenants lost one just a couple of weeks ago. And the building gets sadder and dimmer and emptier. Sam Fuller, at 83, took a buyout and moved last summer, selling some of the lobby furnishings, giving some away. The piano he left, telling a reporter from the L.A. Times, I'll have a cabinet and a little bed and make it look clean and nice and just wait for the end. Sylvie comes home after long days of hearings and filings and meetings and walks into the empty space that was once Sam's great creation. The days when I'm not so emotionally spent from this, from this fight, um, it's really sad and devastating. I think that the only thing that keeps me from not totally losing it and losing hope is the fact that I'm working so hard um, to hopefully affect the outcome. And so there's, there's moments where I'm really in the tragedy of it and then there's moments where I have to think that there's some sort of happy ending here. I ask her what a happy ending would look like. And she says that for her, for her friends, the happy ending is the building gets kept on the rental market, renovated, and the tenants get a chance to come back. Is that realistic? I don't know. I doubt it. I ask her if she ever pictures what it would feel like to pack up and move out. It's not real yet. Mm -mm. I can't. If I think about it, it's really heartbreaking. But later, collaring up her dog to go for a walk, 
She slips and says she thinks he'll miss it when they go. When they go. This place was so special. Anybody who had ever spent time here knew that. And it wasn't about, I mean, all the things we've talked about, the lobby, they were all contributing factors. But there was a soul um, and an energy here. And the, you know, we so often glorify success especially people who, who, who find success um, in, in the arts and in, um, in the pursuit of, of entertainment and, and all sorts of other creative endeavors. But it, that doesn't happen. You, you don't, you're, you're not born successful. And I think that having a place where people support each other on what's a, a really difficult path to, to sort of um, go against the grain... I mean, that's, that's what you have to do if, if you want to pursue the arts. And there's going to be a lot of talent, future talent, that won't get nurtured in the city of L.A., a city that's supposedly built on an industry that, that requires new talent to, to come. And I think that it's really unfortunate, and it's... Um, and it's it's to it's it's a it's to our disadvantage ultimately, you know. And the very thing that is attracting people to the city will be the thing that's lost, and eventually it'll just be completely gone. That would be a giant loss in the life of a place like L.A. And as sometimes gets obscured in the big picture, a giant loss in the individual lives of the millions of people who call it home. The focus that I have on sort of the the end goal um, keeps me from falling too much into the emotion of 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 losing this and and the destruction that I've watched that I've had a front row seat to. But there are days I I come back and I'm 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 really sad and I go and I sit at the piano and I think, gosh, I wish I sat at the piano more often. 